Here, our, the theme of our preaching ministry is learning the way of Jesus, and today we're continuing a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And as we've said, uh, the Ten Commandments reveal how God wants people to live. Now, ultimately, to sum it up, uh, we can say that the Ten Commandments really are all about learning to love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments are really a law of love. Jesus taught that himself. Now, just a quick reminder, this is something that I told you I was going to remind, we're going to sprinkle it in through this Ten Commandments series, but the Ten Commandments as God's moral law are not the way to be saved. We are not saved because of our obedience to the law. We have to remember that God saved the ancient Israelites by his grace from slavery in Egypt, and then he gave him the law. It gave them the law. So God's law is the way to follow him once you have a relationship with him by his saving grace. So just a little reminder about that today. I'll probably remind you about that in a few weeks again. Well, today we're considering the sixth command, and this is a command to honor life. But why does God care so much about life? And does this command simply mean that we should just avoid murder? Or does it have deeper implications? Well, once again, we have so much to unpack in just a couple words this morning. So, Lord help us. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, please take it and open it to Exodus chapter 20, starting with verse 12. And as we did last week, we're going to read through the second half of the Ten Commandments, and then we'll unpack the Sixth Command together. Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother so that, it may, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is God's word. So we've said that the book of Exodus here, to give you a little context, was written about 4,300 years ago in round numbers by Moses, who was the great prophet and leader uh, of ancient Israel. And Exodus describes a key turning point in history when God rescued a people, the people of Israel, from slavery in Egypt and then entered into a covenant relationship with them, and which included giving them the law. So the first four commands of the ten are focused on how we are to love the Lord our God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, while the remaining six are about how we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we saw last week that our neighbor includes, certainly, even the neighbors who are closest to us, even the neighbors in our own home or family. And we were instructed there to honor our fathers and our mothers. And we saw that this was because parents are supposed to instruct their children in the faith and pass along any wisdom that they might have on how to live. And both of these things not only are incredibly, vitally important for us, but they bring much honor to God and they matter greatly to the Lord. Well, today we're focusing on the sixth command, which reads simply, you shall not murder, or thou shalt not <laughs> murder. Sounds simple enough, right? Not quite. Okay. Every negative, the reason is every negative 
part of a command, the negative prohibition, thou shalt not, if you will, also has a positive side. And the positive side is rooted in God's character, in his nature, and in his heart for how this world ought to work. So, for example, the prohibition of the first command, you shall have no other gods before me, also means that God positively intends for us to have a relationship with him and him alone. It's not only about what we cannot or should not do, it's also positively what type of life we are called into. So here, the prohibition against murder also means that God intends positively for us to do what exactly? To honor life, to work for flourishing life, and to protect human life when it is threatened. Now, it's often in the positive intention of God behind the commands that we see God's just incredible vision for what his world was supposed to be like and what it was like before the corruption from sin and what it will be once again in the age to come in, an, in the new heavens and the new earth. So what does it look like to honor life according to this beautiful vision of God? Well, first, let's consider why God cares so much about life in the first place. In a world that is just marked by so much death, does God really care all that much about life? Now, this is a fair question. So first, let's consider the case study of life and death in the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Now, for those of you who might remember this story, Cain and Abel are brothers who both make offerings to the Lord. But for, the re for reasons that remain a little unclear in the story, the Lord accepts the offering of Abel, but not from Cain. As a result, out of this incredible anger and jealousy, Cain confronts his brother, attacks him, and winds up killing him. Now, Genesis 4, verses 9 and 10 say this. Just listen. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Now, I believe that this isn't the Lord looking for information. One who knows all things doesn't need the information. But what is God doing here? He's allowing Cain the opportunity to confess and repent of his sin. He says, I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Doesn't sound very repentant, does it? The Lord says, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So the Lord goes on to articulate the judgment against Cain for this murder. And I, I just find the language interesting that the Lord uses here. Listen, listen, the Lord says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The unjust killing of Abel cried out to the Lord. It's almost as if creation itself was interceding on his behalf. In fact, murder could rightly be called an unmaking of creation or an anti-creation because when God works as the creator, he brings, we say, light into darkness, order into chaos, and what? Life where there is no life. God is the author of life. 
And he is also the sustainer of all life and breath. So it only makes sense that the destruction of life would be absolutely against his will and his way. Now, this is a broken world. So death is part of our reality. Now, sometimes death comes naturally, if you will, at the end of a normal span of a human life, perhaps 70 or 80 or 90 some years. This was true back in Moses' day. He actually refers to it in a psalm that he wrote. Now, of course, someone might die at a younger age as a result of an illness, such as cancer, for example. And this is tragically part of the brokenness of the fall to sin. Everything, including our biology, has been distorted and corrupted in some ways by sin. Now, Jesus showed that it's not necessarily the sin of the person who gets sick, but it's the result of sin throughout creation. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, creation is now in bondage to decay and is groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. But other times, death comes not from old age or from a severe illness or because of a murder like Cain and Abel, but because of an accident. In the U.S. alone, almost 36,000 people die every year from car accidents. But I don't think that this is really what the Sixth Commandment is all about. It doesn't say it explicitly here in Exodus 20. In fact, it doesn't say a whole lot, does it? But later in Deuteronomy chapter 19, the Lord provides Israel with cities of refuge where someone who accidentally kills someone could go and be protected from further acts of vengeance. Now, of course, they didn't have car accidents back in this day, but from time to time, people were accidentally killed. And if, if that happened, you could flee to one of these cities of refuge so long as the death was truly an accident, meaning it was without premeditation and it was without evil intent, what we might call manslaughter today in our legal system. And I think this really shows the goodness of, and wisdom of God in his law. Life can be complicated. And even though an accidental death is a tragedy, it should not lead to a cycle of more violence and more destruction of life from, from the person who has affected their friends, their family members, and so on. Now, in some ways, this is similar to the case of someone who is working in the military or in law enforcement in our community. From time to time, having to take a life in the line of duty in order to prevent even more destruction of life. However, if there is premeditation or if there is evil intent, even by someone who has been given authority over life and death and someone is killed, the Lord is clear, you are not to let that person walk free. That is injustice. Their blood is crying out to the Lord, demanding that justice be done. Well, I think all of this is good and right and true, not to allow a culture of death to flourish, but we must take this, this discussion down one more level to address the heart implications of this command. 
Where in the Bible do we see this? Well, we see this explicitly from none other than Jesus himself in the famous Sermon on the Mount. Now, earlier this year, under this theme of learning the way of Jesus, uh, we went through the Sermon on the Mount. But let's just look at this passage from Matthew chapter 5 once again, verses 21 and 22. You have heard it said, that it was said, Jesus said, to to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says, um, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. <laughs> Whoa, okay. Jesus teaches that the sixth command was right, referring in this passage to what people had heard long ago in the Ten Commandments. But it goes deeper than just making sure that we are careful to avoid murdering people. Jesus says that angrily dismissing someone or disrespecting someone or dehumanizing someone is the seed of murder in the human heart. And this is a violation of the spirit of the Sixth Command. Now, this is so critical for us to understand today because far too many people, I would say far too many Christians, have successfully avoided murdering people in the flesh and therefore feel justified that they have been obedient to God's will and God's way and yet regularly murder people, murder other people in their hearts and minds and in their angry and dismissive attitudes towards them. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not right. God doesn't want a person or a society where the value of human life is so low that we think all that God wants for us is just to avoid murder. God has a positive intent. And he wants us to love all people and value every human life in in thought, word, and in deed. Even how Jesus talks about his own mission and his own work versus the devil's work reveals this divine priority of life. We see this in John chapter 10. Jesus says the thief, meaning our adversary, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they they may have life and have it to the full. The work of Christ is bound up with life and death. A culture of death is a culture of antichrist. Paul writes about this work of Jesus saying, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and how again did Jesus deal with our great problem of death? He gave up his own life on the cross for the sins of the world. Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, but on the third day he rose again from the dead, and he is the firstborn from among the dead, the first man to be resurrected. And Jesus wasn't simply revived only to die again later. He was resurrected to eternal life. And his life, his eternal life, a life beyond death, this resurrection life is freely given to all who believe in him and trust in him for salvation. As John famously writes, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
The life of Jesus was given for us so that the eternal life of Jesus might be given to us. And this is true even though we have not been perfectly faithful to obey the sixth commandment, to honor every human life in thought and word and deed. Think about who is even giving us this command. Moses was guilty of murder himself, and yet God chose him and called him and empowered him and led him. This is just what the grace of God looks like. This is just one reason why the gospel is good news for us. Well, what does this look like for us today? And what might it look like to obey this command in our day-to-day lives, other than try not to murder anybody, okay? That's just general wisdom, good advice. You know, put that in the back of your mind, please. Um, But there uh, there are so many applications of this law beyond that. There are so many things. I mean, this has so many implications, but I'm just going to give you two today, and I just apologize for that. There are a million ways this applies. I'll give you two. First, to obey the sixth command means to be especially attentive to the most vulnerable lives among us. Now, I think especially of a few categories of people, the unborn, the poor, the elderly, and people in our society who have some sort of disability. These are people, generally, who cannot properly defend themselves or advocate for their needs or ensure that justice is done to them and for them. They might have and typically have far fewer resources, if any, than others, and therefore are far more vulnerable to being taken advantage of or of being abused or even killed. In Francis Schieffer's classic book, How Should We Then Live?, Francis writes about the modern value of personal peace, saying, quote, personal peace means just to be let alone, not to be troubled by the troubles of other people, whether across the world or across the city, to live one's life with minimal possibilities of being personally disturbed. Personal peace, he writes, means wanting to have my personal life pattern undisturbed in my lifetime, regardless of what the result will be in the lifetimes of my children and grandchildren. Now, he, he writes that this is a modern value. Now, of course, no one wants extra trouble in life. I don't. I'm sure you don't either. Life has enough trouble on its own, but the point I think that he is making is that Christians, we must be very clear-eyed in recognizing that this is a modern value and it has the power to influence us, whether we're aware of it or not, to ignore the plight or ignore the needs of the most vulnerable people among us, which would be a clear violation of the sixth command. Now, this would be a sin of omission, not commission, meaning this would be a failure to do what is right, not necessarily the sin of doing something actively wrong. Now, let me give you an example of this. I know that there are very difficult, painful, and emotional situations around the issue of, of, of abortion. And there are legitimate concerns and questions over the life and health of the mother and the child and everyone involved But I wonder how many abortions have been done from a motive of personal peace, as Francis Schieffer writes. 
I can't have this baby now because I'm not done with school or I'm not established in my career or I'm, I just don't have enough money saved up. This is a great evil and it happens far too often in our country. Depending on the studies you look at, somewhere between 600,000 and 900,000 legal abortions were performed in 2020, the most recent year we have data. Now this represents thank God, a huge decline since in annual numbers from the 1980s and 90s. Perhaps half of those annual numbers. But still, if abortion was included in the list of, of causes of death, which it never is because of, of course, political reasons, it would be at the top. Either about the same every year as heart disease and cancer or more. Now, I'm not saying that Christians should only focus on the unborn. Not, of course not. And ignore the needs of people for the rest of their lives. That, too, would be a violation of the Sixth Command. And these issues are complex. And people have needs throughout their whole life, which are difficult to meet. But I think, first, we must see that to obey the Sixth Command means to be especially attentive to the needs of the most vulnerable lives among us. Well, second, and finally, to obey this command means that we must see our vocation, our calling, frankly, our work in this life through the lens of life and honoring life and working for the flourishing life of all people, working to contribute to the flourishing life of all people, working to protect the flourishing life of every person. And I would say as a Christian, to learn the way of Jesus means we must see that this is how God works. This is how God the Father does his work of creation, of just bursting life. I mean, think about even the other planets in our solar system. To our knowledge at this point, there is no other life. And think about the earth, teeming with life, overflowing with life an unbelievable amount of life. This is also what the Lord Jesus does in his work of salvation, of working, of giving, of serving, of sacrificing. Why? To redeem lives which are lost without him, to bring life, and not just life for a time, but eternal and abundant life. This is also what God the Holy Spirit does in his work of sustaining our life and our breath every day, day in and day out. It also is what he does in applying the saving work of Christ to us by faith. The result of God's work, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is life and life eternally and abundantly good. Now, no matter what we do for our work, or whether we're paid for our work or unpaid, whether you work in the home or outside the home or like most of us, a little of both, every one of us can use our time and our talent and our treasure to contribute in some way to the flourishing life of all people. Now, not one of us will be able to ensure everyone has a flourishing life, which is why this is an all skate. You all need to be involved in this. We need to do this together as the people of God. 
We need to use our work, whether it's in the home or not. We need to use our time, we, which is a finite resource. We need to use the unique gifts that God has given us and insights to contribute in some way to life. Teachers, Christian teachers, teach so that your students have a better life by growing in knowledge and growing in wisdom and growing in maturity. People in healthcare, Christians in healthcare, use your work to bring healing and care for people suffering many different illnesses and afflictions. People in finance, Christians in finance, use your work so that people can be wise and fruitful and stable with their financial resources. That is helpful for flourishing life. People in ministry, Christians in ministry, use your work so that other people may hear the gospel and come to faith in Jesus and grow in their faith in Jesus. This helps people flourish. And on and on. We need Christians in government and we need Christians in all aspects of life working for the flourishing life of all people. People need this work. Now there certainly are some jobs and maybe even whole industries that do not contribute to flourishing life. So if as a follower of Jesus you think about your job and you think about your work and you realize that you know, this really could describe your job or your industry. It, it, it uses people or it abuses people. It doesn't contribute to their flourishing life. It might be time to find a new job, O oh Christian. You shall not murder. God commands this because life greatly matters to him. Therefore, May we be people who are especially attentive to the most vulnerable people among us. May we be people who see our work as a way to glorify God and contribute in some meaningful way or protect in some meaningful way the flourishing life of all people in thought and word and deed. And may we be people who exude the life of God's kingdom, life eternally and abundantly good in Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your faithfulness to create our life and sustain our life and save our life in Jesus. Father, Please forgive us for the times when we have not properly honored life. Please forgive us when we have been a part of, of things to tear others down or to use others for our own gain or maybe even to destroy life. Father, we have to trust in the forgiveness that you promise through the blood of Jesus. Forgive us, Lord, and cleanse us from guilt and shame and help us to go in a new direction, to follow your way, to do your will regarding life. Give us eyes to see the people around us that we maybe have ignored. Give us hearts to feel toward them how you feel toward them and value them how you value them. 
Because Lord, we cannot do this without you. We ask for your help and we trust that you will help us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.